Welcome to the Sustainability and You podcast, a series of interviews focusing on facts shared by passionate advocates who are part of the movement towards net zero. I'm Josephine Bush, and I'm the founder of the Sustainability and You platform. And I'm Tilly Wickens, the leader of our Young Ambassadors Council. In this podcast series, our aim is to raise awareness, encourage collaboration, and join the dots between disciplines that will influence policy and decision-making as we move to net zero. We are aiming to bridge the gap between silos and generations, strengthening the lines of communication with a small, influential community of people who care and are passionate about how we create change. today's episode of the Sustainability in You podcast, we talk to Ben Goldsmith. Ben is a co-founder and chief executive of Minhaden Capital, a London-listed investment trust with a focus on energy and resources. Ben was also a co-founder of the asset management firm Web, which is a leading European sustainability investment management business, and of Alpina Partners, an European clean tech-focused private equity fund manager. He's also the chair of the Conservative Environment Network of the Conservation Collective. He's a trustee of the Children's Investment Fund Foundation and a non-executive director at DEFRA, the Department for Environment, Food and Rural Affairs in the UK. Josephine, Stephanie and I had an incredibly interesting conversation with Ben. We covered amazing projects and new business models that are already being put in practice in the UK and around the world, involving conservation and restoration of nature and biodiversity. Importantly, we also discuss how we can bring more investment into nature and biodiversity, and how we can do it at the speed that our planet needs. Welcome, Ben, to the Sustainability and You podcast. We're absolutely delighted to be here with you today. So welcome to our podcast. Thank you very much for having me. I'm very honoured and delighted. I'm joined as well um, in this podcast with um, Stephanie and Carolina. I'll let them introduce themselves. Uh, Steph, over to you. Hi there. Thank you very much for inviting the podcast. I'm really excited to hear Ben's views about biodiversity and protecting nature. So can't wait to hear your thoughts. Hi, Ben. I'm Carolina. It's great to meet you. I'm a senior manager in the Carbon Trust Green Finance team. So let me jump straight into it. Well, the focus of our podcast will be nature-based solutions. So whilst we won't ignore your, your role at uh, Manhattan and, and other roles that you have, I'd like to move beyond that and explore in particular your love of nature and approach to the build of uh, viable business models that allow for restoration, rewilding, and uh, renaturing. Uh, so I wanted to start by asking you about your career trajectory to date and what led you to it, to what you're doing today. Uh, and yeah, over to you. Well, hi, Carolina. Hi, Stephanie. Thank you both so much. So I've, I've always been fascinated by nature um, ever since I was a child. Um, in fact, I think I think I think all people are born with an innate love for the natural world. Um, the writer E.O. Wilson coined the term biophilia, 
to describe humans' innate love for the non-human world. And um, you won't find a toddler that isn't obsessed by a frog or fascinated by a bird's nest with blue eggs inside. And I think I think a lot of people um, sort of lose that connection as they grow up for various reasons. I didn't. I remained um, you know, a passionate nature lover and conservationist through my teenage years and into adulthood. Um, but I think that biophilia in many people becomes dormant, uh, but, but it never really goes away. I mean, an apartment that overlooks uh, Hyde Park will sell for twice the price of one that doesn't. You know, people do feel that craving to be close to nature. And um, it might have been the adult influences around me. I, I grew up, for example, with my brother-in-law, Imran Khan, former prime minister of Pakistan, who is a deep nature lover and finds tremendous spiritual connection with the natural world. And I guess he made it cool for me to, to kind of um, to continue to, to, to have that obsession as I, as I grew up. Um, my brother, Zach, of course, as well, was um, you know, a big influence on me and a big nature lover. So I, I, I've actually focused my career on, on environmental investing. So I, I, I've built two uh, sustainability-themed investment businesses, uh, Web Asset Management, WHEB Asset Management, and more recently, Manhattan PLC, which is listed on the main London Stock Exchange. And those are both um, kind of sustainability-orientated, uh, sort of ESG-mindful um, investment companies. And, and I, I like investing as an activity. That, that's what I've really spent my professional life doing. Um, I, I wouldn't say necessarily that investing gives me any sense of purpose. Um, I'd say it's kind of akin to playing cards or backgammon. You know, it feels great when you when you get it right, when you do it well. It's intellectually stimulating. I enjoy working with the people um, with whom I work. Um, and um, for, for that reason, I've actually sought to, to spend time in, in each day working for nature recovery. So I have a bunch of non-executive positions that I have uh, which are really tools which enable me to to focus on the, the, the things I care most deeply about. And I divide my life, therefore, between investing through Manhattan now um, and um, advising the UK government on nature recovery. I'm, I'm involved in a major philanthropic foundation called CIFF, C-I-F-F, which is um, probably Europe's largest climate and environment-focused philanthropic foundation. Um, and I chair the Conservative Environment Network, which which does what it says on the tin, and we've built a caucus within the Conservative government now, comprising more than half of all backbench MPs. Um, they've all signed up to a declaration that, that um, endorses the net zero ambition, um, nature recovery ambition, and all of that stuff. Um, and that's bearing fruit. So I am, um, and, and then I'm involved in various kind of species reintroduction and rewilding initiatives. And so I, I, I definitely derive a sense of purpose working towards nature recovery. That's the stuff I, I find most exciting. Thanks, Ben. That's really interesting. So I'm head of sustainable finance, organizer finance. And I am, like you, I think, passionate about the finance side, but really personally driven as a, a fervent environmentalist as well. Um, I wanted to ask a bit more detail about those rewilding and new technology projects that you're working on. I, mean, I think that I think that, that the UK, um, on the one hand, is the most one of the most nature-depleted countries on Earth. So we, 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 we rank in the bottom 10% of nations in the world in terms of nature intactness. You know, we, we've lost so much. We, you know, we, people don't realize, you know, people delighted to hear a solitary robin singing in their back garden, you know, don't realize the scale of our losses. But the, the descriptions of, of, of kind of wildflowers absolutely riotous with color as, as far as the eye could see just you know, 70 or 80 years ago, you know, every field kind of thronged with birdsong and corncrakes and grass snakes and hares and 
um, the inshore marine environment, you know, so full of fish that when the herring fishery moved offshore, the, the herring shoals migrated each year to the inshore, um, to the coast of Britain. When it moved offshore, it left six foot of eggs on the seabed. I mean, in, enormous, enormous abundance of life of all kinds has just been eradicated in this country. And when people fly into Gatwick Airport and they see all the lush green fields of Britain and they don't really realise that a lot of it is green concrete, you know, really rather lifeless. And our uplands are in even an even worse state and terribly overgrazed. And in, in the West, the, the temperate rainforests of Britain have, to the extent of around 99%, disappeared. And we have these very barren, bare uplands as well. We've lost most of our wetlands. So on the one hand, we're the nation that has done the most to deplete our own nature. But on the other hand, I think we are now leading the way internationally in figuring out how to restore it. And there's a bunch of stuff that has been done by the government since kind of Mrs. May's leadership, which is um, sort of groundbreaking, kind of world first. And I, I think that the, the most exciting is the reform to agricultural subsidies, you know, a topic about which most people know very little. But under the European Union's common agricultural policy, farmers were paid simply on the basis of how many acres of farmable land they owned. That was it. And an eye in the sky, a satellite, would look at their land, and if a wetland was creeping back to life or scrub or trees were growing up in a field corner, well, those areas would be excluded from the subsidy bracket. So there was a direct incentive to make sure that every square inch was bare and ready for farming, no matter how suitable for farming. And that's why every square inch of this country, more or less, is farmed, including the steep slopes and the deep valleys and the wetlands have been drained and, and so on. Well, now that we've left the European Union, um, we've had to come up with a new system. And England has designed a system called ELM, Environmental Land Management, under which farmers will be rewarded directly with public money for the stewardship and restoration of nature. Um, that's just a transformational shift. There's a seven-year transition period. We're two years into that now. Um, and already changes are starting to happen all over the place. And what we're seeing is that in the really high-quality agricultural land, mostly centred in the east of England, um, land whereby about 20% about of our country produces about 85% of the food, we're seeing a move towards, towards regenerative farming. So practices which are, um, I guess, um, uh, combining the best of ancient wisdom, um, things like rotational practices, with the best of modern technology. Things like um, using combinations of satellite imagery with drone technology and and, and soil sensors in order to um, you, you apply much more precision in your use of agricultural chemicals. You know, if if you have a, a an eczema on your skin, you don't soak your whole body in steroid cream. Um, you just apply the steroid cream to the small patch that needs it. Um, and the same is becoming true of things like fungicides and pesticides and so on. So, so we're seeing a shift towards regenerative practices, no-till, where the soil is not disturbed by the plough, but seeds are drilled straight into the ground in that high-quality farmland. And in the, in the land which is less agriculturally productive, we're seeing moves towards nature-friendly farming. So fatter hedges and bigger field margins and um, more scope for wildflowers and butterflies and um, new ponds and wetlands and so on. Um, all of those things are eligible for funding under the new environmental land management scheme. Um, and at its most ambitious end, um, there's a tier which is called landscape recovery, which really means rewilding. So where clusters of farmers come together and say, you know, we're going to go back to farming how our great-grandparents farmed these hills in the Pennines or these um, fells in the Lake District, 
um, or this more Dartmoor or Bodmin, we're going to come together and we're going to shift away from intensive sheep ranching towards um, the extensive grazing of, of native cattle and the consequent re-emergence of those amazing uh, wood pasture mosaics that once that once blanketed this island um, and, and which are the richest of habitats that, that we can conceive in Britain. So I, I think this environmental land management scheme is going to be absolutely massive in terms of its impact. I think we'll feel it and smell it and see it and experience it, the length and breadth of this country within a few short years. And, 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 and bear in mind that world governments dish out $700 billion a year to harmful industrial farming practices. So, so just little England with our two point, roughly 2.3 billion pounds of annual agriculture subsidies, we are the first to link that to public good. Public money for public good, it said, on the face of the Agriculture Act 2020. So that's just one example, but a really, really big one, I think. Um, and, and, and there's a bunch of others. So I, I've been lucky enough to be involved in some of that stuff in, in the last five years, and um, I find it thrilling. Thanks, Ben. This is it, it is really exciting, and to see concrete examples, things that are happening and working, and hopefully we'll see the results of that in in not such a long long future. Uh, just wanted to share with you a couple of thoughts I have. They will actually serve as an introduction to my question <laughs> that comes next. So yeah, we know from a number of different studies and, and reports, such as the Stockholm Resilience Centers, Johan Rockström and his work on the nine planetary boundaries. You have Das Gupta Review in, in the UK and from the various IPCC reports that uh, the role of nature in both producing greenhouse gas emissions and also enabling adaptation measures is crit- critical to a, a net zero world, net zero economy. And despite this globally recognized emergency, capital is still not flowing at the rate that we need to nature. And then the other aspect of that is that there's also a lot of research and lots of reports available on the value of nature and methods that businesses can use to actually attribute price to the assets and services that nature provides. On a more macroeconomic level, for example, the Desgupta Review promoted a transformation on not only the way that we think and the way that we act, but also how we measure success, advocating for a more inclusive definition of GDP to include natural resources and also reworking global economic system to, to value nature. I'm interested to hear your perspective on this, on whether pricing nature is indeed one of the solutions and whether it is an effective solution. And yeah. what do you think it takes for the pricing nature to be adopted more widely and to generate the effect at the speed that we need? So I think there are some exciting developments running in parallel with the new environmental land management scheme that cut straight to your question. Um, so the, the, there's, a, there's a market down in, in, in Poole in the southern part of Dorset for in, uh, environmental services or natural capital whereby Wessex Water is paying several hundred farmers further up the catchment to improve their stewardship of the land and to reduce the runoff of nitrates and phosphates into the water. And this came about because um, Wessex Water was faced with the possibility, or no, the obligation to build a new water treatment plant to clean nitrates and phosphates out of the water before they could send it to people's taps. 
And some bright sparks within the company said, hang on a second, wouldn't it be much cheaper if we simply paid farmers further up the catchment to, to alter the way they manage their lands such that cleaner water reaches our systems? And the, 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 the outcome of that was the formation of a, of a business called N-Trade, which is, which is um, wholly owned by Wessex Water and a local stock exchange for these environmental services. In fact, it's been broadened now such that the Environment Agency, which is responsible for helping to mitigate flooding and drought in, in the UK, is also now paying those farmers to change the way they manage their land in order to hold water back and slow the flow. So there's a perfect example of farmers um, earning really good money per acre for managing nature much better and allowing nature to fulfill its intended purpose of of storing water, of cleaning water, and so on. Entrade is now creating 12 such markets up and down the country. In fact, I have a farm in Somerset, which, which I'm rewilding, and a whole bunch of my neighbors have been paid under the local Entrade market that has just started there to do a river and stream restoration across their land. So a lot of the streams have been artificially straightened, which contributes to flooding downstream. And so my neighbors have had diggers in, um, uh, they're filling in those straight ditches and creating naturally meandering shallow streams, which have become these incredible nature corridors, which are crossing quite large distances and which are heaving with songbirds and wading birds and ducks and amphibians and so on. So everyone's a winner under these kinds of situations. So I think that the markets for natural capital are arising of their own accord because people are starting to realize that um, nature can often fix these problems for us much cheaper than concrete can. And the best way to reduce flooding is to enable the uplands to hold back water. Overgrazed hills are simply unable to hold back water after heavy rainfall. So the rain rushes downstream and um, floods people's houses, as well as taking most of the fertile topsoil with it. And then, of course, the summer comes around and there's no water in the hills. And so we get a hosepipe ban and a drought. So if we can use a small amount of money to support farmers in those sensitive parts of the catchment to allow vegetation to grow, to, to reduce the overgrazing, to enable natural mosaic, scrubby wood pastures to re-emerge, that land becomes many, many times more absorbent and can hold the water back after rainfall and release it slowly through the year and, and effectively allow those hills to, um, to be the, the water towers that they were intended to be. So that has a value. Another really interesting one, obviously, is voluntary carbon. Mark Carney, the former governor of the Bank of England, believes that voluntary carbon will be a $100 billion a year market by 2025. Um, in the last year, in 2021, it was a $1 billion market. So all of that money has gone into restoring ecosystems. Uh, we, know, we know that ecosystems, as they recover, draw massive amounts of carbon out of the atmosphere. We also know that we cannot fix the climate problem unless we enable ecosystems to do that on a massive scale. It's not going to be good enough just to decarbonize our economies, just to just to stop stop emitting. I mean, if, if by miracle we manage to stop emitting on schedule and we electrify our transport and we move to 100% renewables and we insulate all our buildings and we do all that stuff, we decarbonize heavy industry, you know, th that'll be a dream come true, but it won't be enough if we don't also restore ecosystems. Um, I, I just want to um, allude to an interesting scientific anecdote, which is... Um, that there was a mini ice age between 1650 and 1850 in the world. In fact, the Thames during those years used to freeze over. There's some amazing pictures of uh, like a circus that used to take place at Christmas time on the frozen Thames at Westminster. Um, the Thames last froze in about 1840-something. So there was a mini ice age that occurred, and scientists have come to the conclusion that the reason for that mini ice age 
was a direct result of the genocide which occurred in South America and North America. So roughly 50, 50 million uh, Native Americans died mostly from viruses that were brought by the Europeans, and if not by viruses, then at the sword or, um, or, 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 or at the hands of the invaders. And so there was an enormous loss of human life, and therefore an enormous abandonment of farmland from the Amazon all the way up into Appalachia. And so during sort of 16th and 17th century, you had a massive vegetation pulse and a consequent enormous drawdown of carbon from the atmosphere, which was able to trigger a total global cooling, which was the mini ice age. So what that tragic story tells us is that if ecosystems are allowed to recover very fast, then they will trigger global cooling and they will pull massive amounts of carbon from the atmosphere. So the notion that there should be a price on carbon, I think, is really, really exciting and absolutely right. And this market for voluntary carbon, I think, is um, potentially a game changer. I found that story very, very interesting because yeah, being Brazilian, I know that there was a genocide in, in Latin America at that time. And last week was what we call in Brazil uh, Indigenous Day. There were a lot of discussions last week and this week because of Indigenous Day in Brazil, raising awareness to what happened at the time when Europeans basically in, invaded right, um, mm. Latin America and what happened to, to uh, Native Americans at the time. Mm. Uh, because when you're at school, what you learn is, oh, it was all very peaceful and all very friendly, which now, you know, is not really the case. 80% of the world's intact ecosystems today are under the stewardship of indigenous people. If you look across the northern boreal, the Amazon, the Pacific, the Pacific Islands, you know, vast areas of the world which are relatively pristine are, um, are under the stewardship of indigenous people. And I think that's because they maintain a, a very powerful uh, sort of spiritual and moral connection with the natural world. Yeah. And I think, I think that our last mm -hmm. best hope really is to learn from indigenous people. Yeah, and ta you know, tapping into the incredible depth and breadth of knowledge, you know, locally, it's so important. And in fact, you've you've raised that issue of the localization, Ben, of, of of some of the resolution to the support and value of ecosystem and ecosystem services um, through you, you know the story with Essex Water uh, uh, and otherwise. And I think I think that's an important part of, of solution development, isn't it? That we um, respect local issues uh, and, and 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 needs um, as we start to think about solution development on that local basis. That's just not you know not just nationally as you've alluded to, Carolina, but it's a uh, it's it's an international uh, opportunity as well. I just wanted to ask um, you, Ben, because you had alluded to the voluntary carbon market and and how that will well, the pricing of carbon will uh, drive uh, and support that market and its development. You know, there's a lot of discussion around offsets and and concern around offsets um, and how they they may be utilised by, by corporates and others as a way to manage their own carbon emissions. But what, what's your view in the broadest sense uh, of the place of carbon offsets in the management of transition strategies to uh, net zero, and and perhaps you could say something around the current view that they don't have a place uh, within uh, the net zero pathway because there's concerns around verifying the quality of the offsets and greenwashing. 
Yeah, so we've got to get it right. I mean, it's absolutely essential that the market doesn't allow greenwashing and 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 doesn't make mistakes either on the on the demand side or the supply side. I mean, the the, the issues are quite plain to see. So on the supply side of things, you know, you can imagine a corporation you know, acquiring rainforest, uh, clearing the trees for timber, and then planting the degraded land with a fast-growing non-native monoculture of eucalyptus or some other radiata pine or some other kind of commercial species, and then claiming the carbon credits on the basis that those fast-growing eucalyptuses are going to absorb carbon from the atmosphere. You know, that clearly is to no one's benefit. So, so on the supply side of things, we need projects which are about fixing ecosystems, restoring healthy, functioning, natural ecosystems, whether those are coastal salt marshes or, or, or mangrove forests or, 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 or grassland savannas or whatever it is. So that, that's absolutely um, vital in my view. And on the demand side of things, um, what we don't want is companies buying their way out of net zero with offsets. But I think if a company has a credible, you know, externally kind of approved emissions reductions plan you know, to, to reduce their emissions by 90% over 15 years, and, and they can show that really that's you know, as fast as they realistically can go without putting themselves out of business, and that, that, that this is a suitably ambitious and kind of Paris-aligned uh, glide path, then I think they should be allowed to offset the emissions that they create in that process. And I think they should also obviously be allowed to um, offset their historic emissions, which some companies are now doing, companies like Microsoft mm -hmm. and so on. If another company wants to get out of reducing its emissions at all, and just simply to continue offsetting at the same level each year, then of course that's unacceptable. So we need a kind of global framework in which both of these supply and demand side um, sets of issues are um, are addressed. And, and, and there are initiatives looking to do that. Mark Carney was leading one of them. Yeah, and the, the I mean, I, I would agree with those comments. And and you know, it, it, with the pricing of carbon, it will help the development of the methodologies for assessing the quality of the credits and and, and provenance of them, and um, the development of registers and the retirement of credits as well. That will help support those trading platforms. I do think that investors and consumers and employees are much savvier. They're much beadier on this stuff than they might ever have been in the past. And I think it's going to become very difficult for big corporations to get away with gaming the system. Yeah. Um, and I think that it will be so bad for their corporate reputation in an era in which everyone wants, wants the issue resolved, the issue of climate nature breakdown, that I think it will be, um, it will be sort of suicidal for, for companies not to do it right. Um, so I, I suspect that the market will, will naturally move in the right direction. Um, but that being said, I think some kind of international framework or some kind of standardization, I think, is called for. Agreed. Yeah. I mean, we are seeing as an alphabet soup, as they call it, of frameworks and, and, and principles. It can be quite confusing um, for corporates to know how to navigate their way through their approach and development of strategies to to nature and nature-based solutions. Um, we've obviously got the evolution of TNFD uh, emerging, as well as the, the Task Force for Climate-Related Financial Disclosures. What we're seeing, I think, is the bringing together of climate um, strategies as well as nature-based strategies. And historically, there has been a, a bit of a disconnect between the two. Uh, I think it's, it's obviously right that the two come together because they're, they're part of 
the same thing and it's not it's never really been clear to me why there've been there's been this divorce of nature from from climate do you think that we should regulate for companies to have to follow these frameworks to have to disclose uh, or that we should leave it to the organizations to voluntarily um, ad- adhere to them I've been supportive of a movement called Say on Climate, which follows in the wake of Say on Pay. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Say on Climate demand is that companies are obliged to report their emissions reductions plan and to give their shareholders a vote on the rem- emissions reductions plan. And mm-hmm. so I think that that's the way to go. I think um, I certainly think mandatory disclosure is for companies above a certain size is called for on, on the nature impact, the metrics are not quite as clear yet. Mm. You know, it's it's harder to quantify. Emissions are quite easy to quantify now. Mm. How do you quantify the, the amount of water you've polluted or the amount of um, you know ecosystems you've you've trashed and so on? And there's a lot of work going on now around that. Organizations mm. like CDP, for example, have, you know, the, CDP's launched its forest footprint disclosure project and so on. So there's more and more of that, but it's not necessarily clear cut yet. I mean, we're looking for a start, I suppose, aren't we? We we just want organisations to to sort of start to engage with the uh, the, the principles that these frameworks are, are seeking to uh, put out there. So we're not looking for perfection <laughs> in yeah. the adoption and application of them. We're just we're looking for the start. Yeah. I certainly uh, encourage that, and to have you know organisations have biodiversity plans, strategies and, and, and investment uh, to support their operational uh, footprints, wherever they yeah. may be. Do you have any views on that? I mean, are you seeing organisations invest differentially now in biodiversity? Yeah, often it appears self-interested, which of course is a good thing. Um, you look at SAB Miller, for example, the brewer, which has partnered up with the city of Bogota, where it's headquartered, mm-hmm. to restore cloud forest on a great swathe of hills and mountains surrounding Bogota. And, um, of course, they get great publicity for doing that. But the real reason why they're doing it is because water is becoming increasingly constrained as the forest gets cleared. And both the city of Bogota and SAB Miller, you know, are enormous users of water. So the two of them have come together and said, let's restore forest um, and and, and thereby secure our water supply uh, for the future. Um, And so that's kind of a self-interested move by SAB Miller in partnering up with the city and doing that incredible ecological restoration work. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think we need to see a lot more of that, you know, the kind of joining of the dots. You know, how are you, how, you know, where are we going to get fresh, abundant fresh water from? You know, where are we going to get clean air from? You know, where are we going to get natural resources from if we destroy ecosystems? And I think, I think that the self-interested preservation of nature is not a bad place to start. And we've seen a huge um, emphasis, as we did with climate, um, related risk management the emphasis has been on risk let me understand what the physical and transitional risks are for me as an organization and we seem to be in a similar place with with nature you know how how, how might my operational footprint be impacted by you know my lo- local area that in which i um and i'm operating if we look at the opportunity sort of side of this um it'd be really interesting to understand what new business models you're seeing evolve that are nature-based that enable the commercialization uh, of opportunity with investment into the natural uh, environment. And that's not just around carbon credits or biodiversity gain. What other business models are you seeing emerge? 
Um, so there's a brilliant business that I met recently in Houston, Texas, called Ecosystem Investment Partners. And what they're doing is um, either acquiring or leasing heavily degraded land, carrying out comprehensive rewilding, um, and deriving a financial return for their investors in so doing. So they've restored, for example, um, a coastal salt marsh in Louisiana. Um, they've restored cypress swamp forest in Mississippi. Um, they've just created a vast new wetland complex in one of California's main agricultural valleys. And they derive payments for doing that from a bunch of different sources, whether it's voluntary carbon or the wetlands banking mechanism that the U.S. has had in place for a decade or more. And they've been generating fantastic financial returns for their investors whilst restoring some really big landscapes. I mean, we're talking tens of thousands of acres. Um, and here in the UK, I've come across a group recently who are looking to um, effectively create an asset class as of, out of rewilding. So they're looking to acquire economically and ecologically bankrupt land, corporate or commercially owned land, which is at the lower end of the ad um, agricultural productivity spectrum, looking to rewild that land and to generate revenues from things like voluntary carbon, voluntary biodiversity offsetting, biodiversity net gain, which is the new development mm -hmm. developer obligation under the Environment Act 2021, um, the public schemes, the environmental land management scheme, um, nature tourism, and so on. So there's a whole there are a whole bunch of new revenue streams which are geared directly towards restoring nature. You know, the Pool Harbor deal that I mentioned, whereby Wessex Water are paying farmers to manage their land better because it delivers cleaner water for the water company. Um, that's being replicated up and down the country. Um, natural flood management is another one. So I think that there is a business model around land use, which I think is really exciting. And that could extend beyond land to the coastal environment and even the inshore marine environments. Um, so really rewilding as an asset class because of the value that these healthy ecosystems uh, provide to, to surrounding businesses and communities. So um, I think that that's exciting. And I think that in, in the same way that an institutional investor today can look at buying a commercial office building in London, they might get a two or two and a half percent yield from that, or they can buy a portfolio of commercial timber. You know, it's one of those um, really rather ugly um, and lifeless commercial conifer plantations that you see on the hillsides in Scotland. Um, and they might get, you know, four or five percent if they're lucky from timber production. There are even funds that offer arable exposure to arable farming. Imagine if there is a new asset class, which is rewilding, and you can mm -hmm. add into your real estate portfolio you know, an allocation to rewilded land, and you expect to get you know, low or mid-single-digit yields from that. You know, that's, that's what various investors in the US and Europe are now trying to, trying to achieve. And, and I think that's, that's going to become a reality, which is a complete game-changer in, in nature recovery. It's so interesting to hear you talk about that new asset class. So I'm currently at City Week in London, which is a kind of a gathering of the international financial services community. And um, we had a great panel discussion yesterday on nature and natural capital. I think one of the main topics of the day was that the finance community tended or tends to think about the financial gain from destroying nature and then the cost of protecting nature, not the costs of not protecting nature. So with these issues around data gathering, um, and looking to the CNFD, do you think these nature investments and these projects that you've mentioned, are they yet being adopted by institutional investors or is it still kind of a, a niche impact investing? I mean, it's all quite, it's all quite nascent, mm -hmm. uh, I'd say, but it's growing fast. I mean, look how quickly solar has grown, for example. Mm -hmm. You know, seven or eight years ago, solar was not a very big industry and now it's um, 
overwhelmingly the dominant source of new power for humanity. Um, and similarly, the voluntary carbon market was really dismissed as something, you know, to be, you know, was not not considered anything serious until the last couple of years. Um, so I think that um, it's nascent, but it will grow very, very fast. And the reason why Des the Dasgupta review was so important is because it highlights the real value of nature. You know, what, what value does a mangrove hold? Well, if you're in Sri Lanka, a healthy mangrove prevent, pre prevents people from dying when there are storm surges or tsunamis. 90% fewer people died um, in the great tsunami of 2004 when they were protected by mangroves. So it's, it's flood defense. Um, it is disaster pre prevention. It is also nursery for most of the tropical fish that people eat. Um, it creates the white sand on which the tourism industry depends. Um, it's a filter pollution out, out the um, water flowing off the land. I mean, there are a whole bunch of tangible economic benefits to intact mangroves. And then carbon, of course, is one of the one of the most powerful ways in which you can sequester carbon from the atmosphere is to grow mangroves. Um, and yet in the old days, the equation was simply what's the cost of cutting it out and how many shrimp can I grow here until the shrimp farm is completely salinified and, and no longer useful. And these kind of wrecked mangroves in which shrimp were grown for three or four years afterwards and a wasteland was left behind afterwards. There's clearly very bad economics. For, forget the environmental catastrophe or the human catastrophe. It's just simply bad economics. So Dasgupta is really, really valuable in highlighting um, you know, where nature protection or nature restoration equates to really good economics. Yeah, and he's also, um, hasn't he opined on uh, the, the, the redirection of financial support and resource to developing nations to reflect the value uh, of the natural resources that we that, that they have, but that we utilise in the developed nation, which is a different economic model for the future. Um, but I'm yeah. glad that you mentioned um, the, the, the developing nations and um, the need really for support and investment in their natural ecosystems. I mean, what more do you think could be done to redirect finance? Because there's been a lot of talk about financial support post-COP um, 26 as well for developing nations, but it's just not happening as quickly as it as it should. And yet it, it's essential and has massive impact as well in those areas. Yeah, environmental degradation is almost perfectly correlated with extreme poverty. You know, it's overwhelmingly the poorest in society who suffer the costs of, of a degraded environment. And conversely, if you fix nature, more often than not, you deliver significantly raised prosperity and well-being in human populations. And um, I, I'd say that it, it's sort of like all roads lead to Rome. You know, all, all the development goals ultimately depend upon healthy nature. So I, I would say that the rich world nations need to ramp up their international development assistance across the board, but they need overwhelmingly to focus it on solutions which restore nature. Um, a lot of international development commitments have been geared towards building new coal-fired power stations or um, you know clearing forests to, to build stuff. You know, and and um, I'd say that you know we we haven't been using our aid budgets very well. You know, there's 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 no work more important than helping the poorest nations in the world to protect what's left of, left of their nature and to fix it back up and restore it and to achieve prosperity in the process. I'd say that that would be my main ask is is um, a greening of the aid budget. And my brother Zach Goldsmith is minister for environment in Defra and the Foreign Office, 
and he's responsible for exactly that work. And when he um, arrived in his position, uh, the proportion of the UK's aid budget was going towards nature recovery was minuscule. I mean, absolutely minuscule. I think a fraction of 1%. um, And he's managed to ramp that up quite considerably under Boris Johnson. And if he stays in post, I hope that he can continue that process and 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 deliver hundreds of millions of pounds or billions of pounds towards forest protection and and ecosystem restoration you know, everywhere from um you know latin america to 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 western africa so that's um that would be my suggestion mm-hmm. and i i don't think we can achieve the transition we need unless we do that steph over to you for our last question thank you so i i loved hearing the almost like poetry in your voice when you were discussing what the uk environment used to be like at the start of the podcast Um, I think we've both read Isabel Tree's books on wilding. So something in that book that I found really interesting was that it was actually the older generation, older than you and I, who were most interested and invested in protecting nature as they'd experienced nature as kids and then seen the destruction of nature over the course of their lives. Do you think it's the younger or older generation in this case who are driving the change for protecting nature? I mean, I think it's got to be said that it's a youth. It's a youth-led movement, I'd say. You know, the young are typically more interested in experiences than things. Um, you know, you, p- people in their teens and their 20s tend to be less interested in buying stuff than the generation that went before and more interested in, in doing stuff and experiencing stuff. Um, and I think that the young are typically more connected with nature than, than those that came before. Um, and, and they're also more likely to hit the streets and um, kick up a ruckus about the impending climate crisis um, nature crisis and so on. So I, I think, you know, I, 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 but that being said, polling suggests that across age groups, there is a rising concern about climate, the twin climate and nature crises. But I, I also agree with you. That was fascinating, wasn't it? Those in their 80s and 90s who visited NEP said, aha, now this is what England used to look like when I was a child. And those between kind of 30 and 70 thought it was a terrible mess. Now, I think that the I think that the one of the principal obstacles standing in the way of nature recovery in England is a complete is, is is a terrible lack of understanding of nature. You know, people see beaver wetlands, which absolutely thrum with life, you know, from dragonflies to amphibians and migratory fish, you know, everything, everything congregates in these amazing beaver wetlands, especially during hot, dry summers. And they just see a terrible mess. You know, it's you know, we need tidying up. We want straight lines, we want concrete banks we want mown grass you know we want hedges that are cut neat and tidy you know we want weeds in the gravel to be sprayed and i think that there is a tremendous um, ecological tidiness disorder in british culture and i i i i think that that is a, is something that needs tackling you know, look at most gardens i don't know if you live in a street with gardens but stick your head out the window and look at people's gardens the majority are immaculately tidy with not there's no space for a you know, for a shrew to live in these gardens because it's plastic grass or decking or stone. There's wooden fences. There's no holes in the fences for hedgehogs to move through. There's no native vegetation. People go to the garden center and buy those neat little colorful flowers that come from elsewhere. And we don't, we need a bit of a tangle of native species. We want, you know, hawthorn blossom and crab apple and stinging nettles and docks and dandelions and these kind of things in people's gardens. You know, if we want nature to come back, you know, we need to weave nature through the fabric of our lives. And so I think that the economic incentives are going to make a huge difference. But we need a dramatic cultural shift in our country. We need to loosen our grip on nature. You know, the, 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 there's a control thing we have in this country. Everything must be controlled. 
you know, it's it, and 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 the cost of that is is that there's no empathy. You know, there's no empathy for nature and not much understanding of it. And I, you know, it has to be said that those who consider themselves closest to nature, those who own land, maybe even those who've owned land for generations, they are the ones who think they know it all, but often know the least. You know, beavers create a mess, therefore they must be shot. You know, otters eat fish, you know, therefore there are no fish because there are otters. It's a bit like the Japanese blaming whales on the, on the lack of fish, which completely ignores the fact that there were once you know, hundreds of times more whales and there were many, many fish. You know, this idea that we, we, you know, we, we, we've flattened wildlife and then what we'll do is we'll blame the remaining wildlife for, for the losses. <laughs> it's, um, so I think there's a tremendous cultural and attitudinal change that needs to take place in this country. And it would be lovely if the young could learn from the very old as to how things might once have been. I definitely agree with you. I'm in the process of ripping up my plastic grass in my very small garden. And I know I'm going to get told that I'm making an absolute massive mess, but you know, I'm going to persevere anyway. Ben, thank you so much for sharing your wonderful insights. Um, you're very eloquent in the way that you convey um, your perspectives. And I'm really grateful. And I know Steph and Carolina are too uh, for your time today. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm really grateful to have been asked. I'm nice to see you both. Thank you.